gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 30 for Friday, July 11th, 2014. Earlier this week, we promised we were going to bring you a review of a boy growing up to be a man and understanding how the world worked and coming into conflict with his father. And we're bringing you that review of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Sorry. We'll talk about uh, Boyhood later. Yeah, no, I like that's it. right. I like oh, it. wait, because it applies to that film and Boyhood. I did something really clever there, and I hope you guys can. Apehood. Um, this is a very special week because all four of us have seen the movie. Dave saw the movie, so check off your bingo cards, everybody. Dave saw the movie. Um, I need a theme song. Yeah, that's we, what I should be doing. <laughs> we need a special sound bite for that. That's true. We need people to... Uh, Fanfare. Actually, no, Dave, you can write that song. You get Welcome, songs. Dave. Welcome to the review episode. It's a totally different beast. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it smells different. Welcome that's to Thunder Jordan Hoffman was Gonzalez. just on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It's a sequel to Rise of the Planet of the Apes, a movie that came out in 2011, um, if you can remember back that far. I believe we reviewed it on a, a previous incarnation of this podcast. I can't remember what we thought about it back then, but I assume we all liked it, except David, because that's how these things tend to go. Um, it is a sequel to that movie, but it is really not that similar to that movie. James Franco is not in it. It takes place 10 years after the, uh, activity of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and I will call it Dawn of the Planet of the Apes at some point over the course of this. I can't keep them straight. It should have been called Dawn, and this should have been called Rise. The whole chronology is backwards. The whole system is out of order. You're out of order. Um... (laughs) Anyway, it is slightly confusing, but 10 years after those actions, most of humanity has been wiped out by that plague we saw kind of in the end credits of the previous movie. And uh, the humans who are hanging on in San Francisco are holed up in a, uh, I guess it's a real skyscraper that uh, people who know San Francisco would recognize. I didn't recognize it, but anyway, they're all living inside this giant building, kind of a, uh, like a big marketplace, like Tower of Babel thing where they're all crammed in there. And they're trying to restore power to a hydroelectric dam outside the city, which is how they come across a colony of apes or the colony of apes who uh, is led by Caesar, which we saw them running off into the woods at the end of the last movie. Uh, it's a violent conflict at first, kind of almost by accident. And uh, we see Caesar and then our uh, main human character played by Jason Clark trying to kind of establish uh, communication and peace. And then some various other humans and apes who were less interested in communication and peace. So uh, before the movie started, Dave kind of told me what he had learned about the plot on the set. And apparently it was, yeah, this family uh, comes in contact with the apes and then uh, some things happen and apes ride horses. And that in some ways is basically what happens in the movie. It's just a conflict between two different tribes, basically. And uh, you can kind of choose which global conflict it most closely mirrors. I think there's a lot of opportunities for metaphor in there if you're looking for it, which we might talk about later. Um, and that is one of the many things I think makes this movie really, really good. I was really excited about it when I walked out. I like it more the more I think about it. I think it's a totally worth I, I haven't seen Edge of Tomorrow, so I can't say it's the best summer blockbuster because I'm a little bit behind. But it's by far my favorite one I've seen, I think, even better than Godzilla. And I'm really uh, I'm really excited about it. And Dave, I, saw, I sat next to you. Yeah. So uh, I lo- I'll go to you first. Oh, well, I also have not. I have, we have a lot of similarities in our opinions <laughs> because I liked it, but I also haven't seen Edge of Tomorrow. So that's what's holding me back from best sci-fi movie of the year. Even though I said I, Under the Skin is like, it's Under the Skin is a different thing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like big action sci-fi movies that are taking deep ideas and putting it in a deep 
chocolate of special effects and very loud noises mm, and delectable. <laughs> yes, you know issues in chocolate. <laughs> I should actually make some sort of product out of that. Anyway, but um, I d- didn't. I'm not going to say I liked it more than Godzilla because Godzilla also is like my my jam. But I did like it in its place in like the Planet of the Apes franchise history because the nice thing about Rise of the Planet of the Apes and what puts it over Tim Burton's failed reboot of the franchise was that it's sort of focused on this Caesar character and it blended with this break in technology uh, to sort of hit people at the end of this summer in a way that they weren't expecting because I think they were all expecting, I was certainly expecting um, something more like Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Uh, But what we got was sort of like this small story with an animal, a CG animal in the lead. And I, I, I think that Dawn sort of builds on that where we could now watch things that I think a summer audience would consider boring if humans were doing it, but just through that very thin lens of uh, where performance capture is these days, makes like the smallest interactions between human characters and a CG character or just CG characters really interesting to watch. So, And that also folds into like the larger metaphors of the story. And so it really opens up if you want to spend some time thinking about it, but if not, it's just a really interesting story about social circles like all Planet of the Apes uh, movies ultimately are. But I really, really liked it. Patches, I want to move on to you first before we get to the uh, conspicuously quiet person on the podcast. Um, yes, well, I'm, I'm maybe better off just responding to that, but because um, Dave did a good job. Uh, I, I really enjoy this movie, too. Comparing it to Godzilla's, I don't know. It's kind of like apples really, and oranges, it's, it's, right? It's, it's, it's not really... It's sucker's game. I, I apologize for saying that up as a dichotomy. They're not really that much alike. Please feel free to... One's look. post-human, as David put it. And this one is pre-human? Post-apes? I don't know. Um, I, I Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Again, it's interesting when you were summarizing this, Katie, that you put a strong emphasis on what was happening to the humans uh, when the movie kind of puts a strong emphasis on the apes. And the, the humans are really second fiddle here and i know when we walked out of the theater some people were complaining that the human characters were underwritten um but i really think that the perspective here is about a human conflict a human conflict seen from afar from where we are with the apes and how they're dealing with it and how caesar is leading this tribe that doesn't know how to deal with man or it wants to be independent uh, but it can't be i mean it's going to live alongside this other nation and it has to learn to not be symbiotic necessarily, but acknowledge the existence, uh, be simpatico. Uh, and I found that drama to be pretty riveting. I mean, Dave, you're right. Seeing humans act out what the apes do in this movie may not be that interesting. Although I, I don't think it's just because of the spectacle that I was gripped by this movie. It's, it's because the performances are really there and because I'm seeing like an alien world come to life because of this technology. It's, it's seeing anthropomorphized apes, uh, acting like humans or evolving before our eyes. And what they can do with the performance capture is, I mean, it seems leagues ahead of what we saw in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I mean, I was just riveted staying on Andy Serkis as Caesar watching his like mouth snarl or, you know, a grimace or a slight sh- shot of the eyes to another direction. It's hyper detailed and it's so captivating to watch a creature that is not us. It's, you know, uh, interact in a way that is very much like us. Uh, and I, I found the whole through line about 
the inevitability of gun violence or how guns corrupt nations, how war and, and paranoia and fear destroy two sides that are mostly good. You know, there aren't really a ton of uh, villains in this movie, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, but when they, when the friction starts and when one person is too scared and has to go into war, they have to create, they have to create a battle. Um, and not just because it's a summer blockbuster where we want a big, crazy action sequence set piece but because it's inevitable for these people there's like no hope it's it's i wouldn't call it a nihilistic movie but it's certainly uh full of hopelessness and we know that eventually this will be the planet of the apes perhaps that we are headed toward apocalypse uh and you get that sense of dread the whole time even when the movie's being hopeful and i think that the human characters give a lot to this movie um, in terms of that hopefulness. Jason Clark, Carrie Russell, and Cody Smith-McPhee, they're not the like most three-dimensional characters ever, but these are great actors who elevate this material so much, especially Jason Clark, who just gives a lot of heart and a lot of just like grounded humanism to um, characters who could be outlandish or could be more... I mean, we love Jurassic Park, but those are wild characters sometimes. You know, Malcolm is a crazy kook and... Uh, a lot of the character caricatures or the kids are just like bumbling fools, always getting into trouble, and that works for them. But these feel like they're coming from a, a real place, and not just because Cody Smith, McPhee's kid character, walks around reading Black Hole, the graphic novel, all the time. Uh, I, I just found it to be a really interesting character study that can you know, slide into big action when it needs to, and Matt Reeves can pull that off. Too like it was really taking my breath away at certain points. There's a scene where a tank invades um, uh, the crowds of humans driven by an ape, which is ridiculous but shocking. And and shot the he shoots the hell out of it. Like the 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 angle he picks, and it's not overshot. You know, we're in this era right now that all of our action sequences feel like pre visualizations come to life. You know, these third party. companies that can kind of just throw any action scene together. All the Marvel movies feel like one big same action scene in every movie. This one's directed by a director, and you can tell the choices he makes. There's another scene where Jason Clark's running through a building, and monkeys oh, I shouldn't call them monkeys. I'm so sorry, guys. Apes. Um, apes are, are fighting man. Yeah, they're both like man versus apes shooting with machine guns through this building that he's just trying to get out of alive, and he keeps hitting walls. Like He keeps running into more chaos and it's all one shot and it's, it was just exhilarating um, so he really, Reeves has a handle on both these kind of heavy dramatic stuff, border Shakespearean uh, it, it, it's at certain points it reminds you of Coriolanus um, and, then, and then you have this big summer action stuff that really functions well now for David. Like, yeah, I feel Hi, like sorry. David's had ex- I don't know if I've ever somewhere. even talked for that long. Sorry. <laughs> uninterrupted I, 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 Jesus <laughs> Christ. I'm uh, sorry. I thought it worked. I thought it was being elegant. I wasn't rambling too yeah, much. Yeah, it was you a were, single take and from the inside of a table. You were fine. Beautiful. You were fine. Uh, and that's our show for this evening. <laughs> oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> I had a lot to say. Uh, yeah, so I, I have you know, not made any secret of the fact that I wasn't especially excited for this movie. I've never really understood the appeal of the apes movies, whether the original series, the Tim Burton or these ones. And I think that's great because you should know, you know, how I feel about this going into it. And when the lights go down, I reset as much as humanly possible. And there have been movies that I've been very surprised to love that we reviewed on this show. Uh, And I had no interest in being bored stiff for two hours and eight minutes, which is unfortunately exactly what happened. Uh, this is 
as I said after the movie, I think I tweeted after the movie, it's uh, it's a visionary film that is completely devoid of imagination. It's very discombobulating to watch. I can't remember the last time I've seen a blockbuster spectacle of this size so astonishingly well-crafted and told with such admirable grace with the way that Matt Reeves directs it and the way that it's is shot. It's a, a, really a remarkable degree of restraint, especially for a movie of this size, that is just so – there's not a single – Literally not a single unpredictable moment in the entire movie. It's a gallingly remedial story. Every every side of this is is rooted in the most. It's it's a, a basic bitch of a summer blockbuster. This is child that may stuff. Maybe the first time basic bitches come up. Yeah, th- this is <laughs> this is child. Uh, you know, I say that divorced from any gender. It's uh, I think the phrase is taken on a life of its own. This is this is really child stuff. It's uh, and I and I say that in a way that I hope we can. Uh, expound upon in a way for it to you know not be quite as condescending as it sounds for the people on this podcast and for the rest of the people out there in the world who really enjoyed this but you know i felt watching this movie that it was cut from the same cloth as something like the dark knight which uh an upsetting percentage of people treated as this grand (laughs) philosophical treatise uh this is this is like this should be first base for our summer movies for our blockbuster entertainment this should be the standard this should be as remedial. It should be seen as remedially as the movie sees itself. Um, but unfortunately, uh, for whatever for reasons that we can get into elsewhere, uh, this is seen as something of uh, an exception. In part because of how immaculately it's put together um, on a on a technical level, and and the mo- the not motion capture but the performance capture work uh, is exemplary. Uh, you know, as everyone would expect, Andy Serkis does a terrific job. A special shout out to uh, really the person who steals the movie for me is a woman named Karen Conneval who plays uh, Maurice the orangutan, mm, yeah. uh, which yeah. really makes it sting that much harder that this movie has a truly pathetic uh, degree of female characters. I mean, I, it, I remarked after the movie that the f- women are of so little consequence in this movie that it makes Captain America feel like you know daisies or meshes of the afternoon. I mean, uh, it's it's really appalling, and and it's not and and there was an out for that. There is an excuse here. You could say that this is simply the you know testosterone fueled men subjugating the, the people around them and and putting their egos in the way and in, in the guise of the or at least the. You know, foundation of the sentiment of protecting their families and their ways of life, um, but something that could have been thematically essential is rendered completely irrelevant because the movie doesn't really give any time or thought to it because it's so preoccupied in telling such a basic story. I mean, every beat with the, with the one bad seed who's afraid, who's who's violating the rules. This guy that they bring up there, um, you know, bring, sneaks a gun or and shoots one of the apes in the beginning. Uh, a lot of the the fallout is, and and it's a credit to the screenwriting that uh, there are a lot of smart decisions made by the characters, a lot of rational decisions made by the characters. You want, in many situations, Jason Clark to to say, "No, Jason, tell Gary Oldman that you're going to go up there by yourself and you're going to talk to Caesar." And sure enough, he does that. But at a certain point, <laughs> everything is so schematic that by 45 minutes into the movie, you could lock five ten year olds in a room and they would be able to map out beat for beat. Literally everything that happens. But don't you think that there's a difference here between predictability and laziness? It doesn't feel lazy to me. It it feels 
like classical in its plotting, but it doesn't feel lazy. The uh, gravitas with which it's told clashes violently, as violently as the apes clash with the humans, uh, with the Stop. banality of the storytelling. I mean, it's. Well, I mean, you're talking uh, about I don't, pre-pulp magazine science fiction though which is just but he's like, not i mean this is a modern film let's let's well, well, no, we no, should no, blow no. past that don't you think i thought the no, 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 previous no, I don't think film so. i which... think i think if you're gonna know your genre know your genre so i'm not expecting something like apes to get beyond really arch basic ideas because its job is to communicate those base ideas well, no, like I'm not, the, origi- I'm not, the original uh, series is just race. I'm not uh, saying like that. Metaphors. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I want the. I, I want the story to go in places that feel false simply because I wasn't expecting them. By no means. I'm just saying that there's a way to do this well, a way that that plums interesting things, and I think the movie flirts with with the idea of. Uh, I think it succumbs to a lot of its laziest tendencies uh, about halfway through and really never looks back. And I think it's really epitomized with Gary Oldman's character who has – you know, the, the entirety of his – he's the closest thing the movie has to a villain. But the movie – oh, actually, that's not true. He's the closest human that the movie has to a villain. But uh, he is you know, rendered in, in shades of gray um, as the movie you know, falls over itself to uh, render all of the humans except for one. But he – his entire character is, is summed up in looking at – pictures uh, on his iPad of uh, of the family that he used to have before this plague wiped them out. I um, liked that. I really and, I actually really but, love that moment because it's so it's so now. The whole movie the whole movie feels like that. The whole movie is that simple. And when it's so simple and so telegraphed and it is trying to be this sensitive single tear rolling down an ape cheek drama that always feels as if it's succumbing to action tendencies rather than using them to heighten what's at stake. And the action is very uh, – while it, it po- it, there are a few posed moments that are quite beautiful uh, in a way that actually reminded me of Roger Deakins' work in Skyfall a little bit, uh, even though this one is coded in truly hideous 3D. That's not necessary in any way. I, I, I'll disagree Agreed. with that. I actually really uh, liked the 3D. The 3D. No. Oh, Katie, Katie Rich okay. says, shut the fuck up. I actually you agree with you wrong. on a couple of things. Um <laughs> In that, I think this. I think the schematic this at times did bother me. I thought in the beginning when you're kind of introducing the humans and you've got really rote things happening, like Carrie Russell standing in the doorway as Jason Clark packs up and she says she's worried about him. And her, I agree with you that the female characters really are of no consequence. It's something that I can't get too bent out of shape about because I like so much about the movie. And there's a way in which I think you kind of dismiss the idea that it's all these wars being caused by male, by male ego and fear and that isn't really that important to the movie, but I do think that's valid. Um, but I think when you talk about the single tear rolling down the ape cheek, I was saying this to Dave last night, I think there's something about the marvel of the technology that brings you back to this really basic level of storytelling in cinema where you're watching... I mean, there's a lot of scenes within the ape colony where there's no, you know, most of them are not speaking, so there's sign language, and there's you know, sign language you can't really recognize. And it's subtitles, and there's no dialogue whatsoever for the most part. And there's this really basic level of, like, watching them have a society, watching them have a family, watching them have kids that's really simple yes. and really effective. And I think that's where the technology really kind of fuses with this simple storytelling and it's something <laughs> yeah like they, no, you're very, no it's it's like watching quest true. for fire it's like watching proto civilization like we're it's it's yeah. being we're taken back in time by this movie in some ways to see what the rawest form of humanity is like we we don't understand ourselves until we've glimpsed 
a, a civilization a civilization coming from the ground <laughs> up. Don't laugh at me. It's horrifying to me that you think this movie is illuminating in that respect in any way. I mean, I think it's an interesting dialogue that we have via the technology with these impressions of an earlier time that Andy Serkis and company are able to embody. But this this is not an especially interesting or intelligent you know, articulation of any of these things. This is uh, this is t- the first ten minutes of two thousand one stretched to a, uh, two hours and ten minutes. No. It, it is. Well, I disagree it, because it of uh, because of the war aspect. Because I, I was actually, I'm actually surprised that you don't connect to this the the thematic. The anti-gun uh, stuff? Yeah, the anti-gun stuff I thought would really yeah, work for you or need, really strike you in a certain way. And it's a blunt movie that we need right now, kind of. There are so many movies. Think of like – there are other movies I don't like, like Killing Them Softly, where you really feel the impact of every bullet uh, because there's a financial cost behind it. And it all has you know dramatic uh, consequences in the story. And of well, course, you know compared I like that movie to, too. So. Yeah, of course, compared to a James Bond movie, um, your violence is well considered here. But what, what after – you know? confronting school shootings every day of the week in this country for years. Am I supposed to get out of this stupid movie that says guns are bad and violence isn't the answer? I knew that. I'm alive in the 20th century. Yeah, but here you're watching – I mean it's kind of like – and it is not as good as the film version or the book, but it's kind of like All Quiet on the Western Front, like seeing – Caesar's kid holding a gun, having a gun thrust into his hands by this warmongering Koba who just wants to – take out all the humans because then they'll definitely be safe. Um, you know, like you feel it's, it's a harrowing image actually to see him have this gun and be like, kill these people. You have to for the better good of, children, of your, we were, we were talking about before the show, you were saying uh, whether or not you would recommend somebody bring their five-year-old to it. And <laughs> I think we all sort of agreed that maybe that was a little bit too young to just understand what's going on. But I do think at a certain age, this is a really good primer for yes. that film because you're not going to go out and watch like war, Witch, which is not a particularly good film, but is the first thing that my mind jumped to as a you know contemporary movie where guns are being thrown into the hands of children. Uh, but, if you are of a certain age, this feels like very superfluous entertainment. The only thing the, – what I do want to give credit to the movie for uh, and something that Katie touched on was about Caesar's character in the first 20 or 25 minutes or so. There is a – especially having seen him evolve in the first film, there is a simmering sort of sup- – Penchant for violence in his character where you look at him as a primitive being on the cusp of this sort of greater humanity and I think there's – with every dialogue that he has with his fellow apes or when they're hunting in the first scene in the movie, they're, you're constantly aware of the – Tension for violence that's sublimating just under the surface. And I think that's a tremendous that, – that is the clearest articulation of anything the movie's trying to do. And it's a tremendous – Wait, do you mean his, his penchant for, for violence, for beating people up? Like that not his that limit is ape, ape will not kill ape, but he'll beat the living shit out of you uh, I, I because he has a temper? You can, you can feel the violence sort of under, under his hairy skin. Like you, can, you can feel the, that, that – Violence is always a considered solution to any problem that comes into his way and something that he has to actively not only in himself but also for his well, for his followers he has to actively suppress and I, it's very uh, palpable for me. I, I think I we should we should turn to that in a way and I'd, I'd want to hear uh, Dave and Katie 
talk to this because I, I certainly have moments, and I'm sure, David, that you agree with this too, that the, the performances in this movie, especially the people behind uh, the performance capture, there's like this strange, there's a, a, so much nuance too. And speaking to what, Dave, you were saying earlier just about what this technology is capable of, I, I'm, I'm like, I was in awe of just watching small moments and, and having this little drama. I think, David, maybe that's why it really worked for me, why it could be so simple just to see these human moments in these anthropomorphized characters or to see, like, multiple emotions happening at once. There's a scene where Koba, I think it's been teased in trailers or whatnot, where Koba tricks two humans uh, into thinking he's a dumb he's a dumb ape. He's being all kooky and crazy and, like, ape want a banana kind of shtick. Um, but underneath it, He's like about to grab their machine gun and blow both of them away. Uh, and it's a really calculated move. And I think calculated uh, is a tough thing to sell, even for a human actor. Mm-hmm. I just I felt like uh, the, this really felt to me like like the Dark Knight, like a lot of big ideas handled for, for a lot of people. That's a very high uh, and, praise. And you know yeah. what? Those people will probably enjoy this movie. And that's and you look but, down upon them. And, oh, oh, from my ivory tower, I look straight down. But the I, it does make me, in retrospect, have a greater appreciation for what the first film dared to try, even try and accomplish, and how sort of modestly scaled it was, and and how focused on emotion and what look feeling. You know, the the greatest impact in this movie was just considering in retrospect, the fallout from the actions in the first film, which I only hazily remember. But this is, as far as I can tell, the most boring possible way to expand on that universe, which is a universe that I didn't especially care to see expanded upon in the first place. Someone stick Although, up for this movie. Kudos, this movie is not boring. Kudos, this is not a boring movie. I was very bored in this I was not bored for a second in this movie. Mike Bloomberg forgetting the first line of dialogue <laughs> in the film. <laughs> Go New York! This is, this is a good... This is not a boring movie, even when it's it's. I was bored. I was legitimately bored, and I was not halfway through the movie. Have you had you asked me if I would be bored later on? I probably would not. I I probably would have said no because I was I wasn't loving it, but I was, you know, I was I was jiving with what Matt Reeves was trying to do. I think, but um, once you know, Koba. This is not. uh, We won't get too far into spoilers, but Koba incites. Some, some tension between the sides, and it, it's so clear how it's going to play out um, that it's really... I mean, the, the dialogue is so painfully on the nose. Uh, there's so little room for interpretation. It, I was really felt like I, I was in a straitjacket in the second half of this movie. Hmm. That's so, it's so funny to hear you say it. Well, um, go, Dave. Dave. Oh, I don't disagree with what a lot of David's saying. I think that, you know, if you're not coming... To the movie with David's <laughs> background in film, then you might still see the things coming because it's about seeing the things coming and being unable to stop it. And I mean, I'm I can't disagree with anything David says. I'm just puzzled because you bring up how it's like you see what they're trying to go for and you think they made a genuine effort and you see at some point even the screenplay, you know, manages to sidestep some stuff. So it's like I understand you were bored, but I don't know how to talk you out of being bored when it seems like you can acknowledge that the film at least gets to where it's going. You just kind of wish that it, you know, I was more risk taking and getting there, which I can't disagree with. I looked at the beautiful sets and these like very gorgeously wonderful organic, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic sets. And I am I very conflicted thoughts about the idea of there being a, a movie of the video game the last of us 
But that was I, I spent more time in the second half of this movie daydreaming about that than I did what? bothering to pay attention to any of this. But wait, in the beginning you you liked it. You liked what was going on here. I like I really appreciated yeah. the kind of practical grandeur of this movie. It's very lush. I mean, they it looks like they built sets inside of forest areas. I mean, I, I, I think uh, the same way I keep going back to Jurassic Park. But the same way that can kind of just take the time and soak in the land and this kind of lush environment, I think this movie really does mm. that, these kind of rainy forests. And uh, especially no when we get to be just with the no apes No disagreement there. for me. Yeah. I think yeah, right on. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, Matt Reeves deserve, and his team deserve all the credit in the world for um, – from indulging in that and really taking this action into the wilderness of British Columbia. And, and now they finally have the technology to do that and still retain the integrity of the performance capture performances. Um, you know, I'm glad that they made the most of it. I, you know, it, it reminds me a lot. And when Dave uh, was describing it at the top of this episode, he might as well have been talking about Godzilla. But, um, you know, Godzilla is... Uh, while it has uh, some of the same flaws, especially in regards to the female characters, um, it, and is about – well, it's a lot more opaque as to what, what it's about now goes about it. But there's uh, – it, 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 it better delivers on the movie that it represents as being and achieves in spectacle what you know, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes uh, is primed to go for but doesn't have the story to push in that direction mm-hmm. um, and – I, I recently, over recent years, when you get to the third act of one of these movies and you're getting to that big firefight, uh, it's such a effective and accurate bellwether as to whether or not the movie is doing anything for me and really, you know, that I'm ever going to think about it again. When I'm totally disengaged in who's shooting who and and what the stakes are and where uh, they're fighting and just waiting for the action to, someone to wrap back, up. Back me up here, people, that the action in this movie is really pretty darn good. And even when it goes into, like, standard blockbuster set piece stuff at the end, it's doing this juxtaposition where we, we're we with apes, we're with man, we're with apes, we're with man. Uh, and they're each in their own pockets. And that's where the, like, drama is bubbling up to. I really, I mean, yeah, I mean this movie... Action. Yeah, but it's also it's it's thematically important. It's what this movie is about. I don't think it even when it goes Hollywood, it doesn't lose sight of what it's trying to say. I mean, I'm more with David that that cross cutting action should be like the low bar for well, F you. What it, but it's good. <laughs> um, but I, do, I mean, I think that the firefight scene that we keep alluding to that David said he was totally checked out by, I thought that was astonishing. Not only because it was well shot, as we were talking about with that one. Uh, uh, sequence from on top of the tank you were talking about, but that it's so brutal, and you're watching the scene happen, and you feel bad. This movie is scary, is it? Is they it? do a really good Was job it? of not letting you ever you be quiet, David. <laughs> like you, like what our heroes want in this movie is peace. They want for nothing to happen. We want so peace. Give Sorry. you kind of the, like they're trying to tell you that like oh no, but violence is bad, and you know you're not supposed to enjoy this, but then you really are, and like almost every other action movie and in this one it really feels bad you're not enjoying even the artistry of watching these bullets fly around there's no <laughs> watching an ape joy in it. wielding you know, two I, machine uh, guns riding a horse through flames this isn't going to win me any any fans not that anything on this episode will but the uh, the last <laughs> the last act reminded me of a poor man's last act of avatar 
in many, many ways. Oh my and God. I think Avatar has the But I like Avatar, so it's not And the cross-cutting uh, and the music. The music in this is pathetic. The music oh, in really? Avatar. That, that no, 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 over the, you know, the final, the final battle where he's cross-cutting between all the various fights. It's, it's, it's a model, uh, regardless of what you feel about that movie. That, that stretch of time is really a model to how to end one of these movies with panache. And really like uh, into in build everything. I, I did too. I, I thought I, the, I'm exaggerating. Pathetic the music, is, is the music in the beginning is much better than the action, which music. I think is a is a problem here. I, I I I'll go to bat for at least half this soundtrack as a as a film music nerd. Uh, I, Michael I think, Giacchino, right? It, yeah, it's definitely better than all the Star Trek stuff he's been or he did in Into so Darkness. Wait, wait. But it, it's kind of like it's almost like the Searchers. The I'm still of processing. <laughs> David, you weren't bored by the predictable decisions in Avatar? Uh, well, I, I, well, I think Avatar <laughs> has a lot. Uh, David watched, so David's seen more... it 500 times on HBO. He doesn't even know when he's watching Avatar. <laughs> he's watching Avatar in his sleep. I have, I have very crystal uh, memories of seeing Avatar for the first time in, in IMAX at 68th Street. And uh, When he says crystal meth, I mean <laughs> crystal dreams. If I can memories. tap back into that, I think you know Avatar is such a, an immersive world that it creates in such a, a, this huge scale. And I think James Cameron, he, just, he, he delivers it in a way that the conflict feels, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's just much, it, for me, it was much more immersive. I, even though it was all stock situations, the way that he was presenting them was unlike anything that I had seen before. It, it actually, I think the fact that while it was a typical tale of colonialism and, you know, the most tried and true version of that, um, the details were vividly different enough that I was able to sort of go along with the action. And here it was... It's just like I was. I just wasn't. I just by that point. I think. Wait, wait. I think I just there. talked. I think I just talked David in to the dividing line. For those of you that are listening and might not know David, I think he just explained how this is a good movie. He just didn't like it for some reason. Why? So I don't think this is a good movie. I don't think it's a hateful. Like I don't hate this movie. I just. I. I do have a. A, a bit of a resentment you, towards the universal I mean, acclaim for but, it. But, but what I you're saying is that you would rather see something like. Blue, a blue cat person riding a dragon. Then no, uh, I would rather see a Weta try to create an ape out of a performance. I would which rather is a, a valid decision for uh, no, awe I, and fantasy. I, I would rather see a truly spectacular version of something I've seen before than a mediocre version of something that I think we've all seen before and uh, and feels like genuinely remedial, where at least Avatar looked to the to the skies and, and tried to sort of pioneer new new venues for familiar forms. This this really there wasn't a single moment in this movie. In this movie that's predicated upon this incredible new technology uh, and, and furthering it that felt new to me in any way. And that that's, was a really discombobulating. Not feeling. enough Pandora. I guess that's, that's true, but we're still at the point in this technology. We're just getting to the point where they can do anything that you could do without the technology is like a challenge. So like every time the apes are in the trees, there has to be a camera that has a clear line of sight on them every second. If they're going to be on camera, because that performance needs to be captured. So every time they're like, riding a horse through a forest of trees that's like 200 still cameras that are placed throughout the forest just to get that like little shot so if they're building to the place where they're just able to do these rote mythology fables in a franchise like planet of the apes 
that was never really that complex to begin There's with. There's also the I'm not thing- going to knock them, but I'm also not going to say that I enjoyed blue native americans better as a plot but there's also the thing for me that like the technology was not nearly this far along when they shot the two towers but i'm so much more engaged in what andy circus is doing uh, as Gollum, which was a totally different process at that point they were f- animators were filming him on set even though he sort of invited himself to set and then and then tracing his performance that he would have to recreate for them in the studio and here this is all coming directly from his face that was motion capture this is genuinely performance capture but you know it's not about the means for me it's really about the ends and caesar uh, is a, is a very I mean he's a primitive character um, and he's evolving to a point where he's human he's, he's evolving to a point where maybe seven films from now he'll be remotely interesting for me uh, but there's a bell curve I mean the first movie when he was achieving this you know almost human conscience consciousness of any kind that was an interesting metamorphosis but being in the middle ground where he's just like a person with a low IQ and a large following I have a million of those on Twitter it's just not a particularly wow. interesting dynamic for me and when it becomes the planet of the apes and he has to rule and extinguish the last of the humans maybe it will become interesting again but this is a deathly boring middle chapter for me and i mean i i think it it speaks it's it it speaks to the sorry state of our blockbuster filmmaking that uh people are falling over themselves to love it it's fine i was bored i never want to think about it again i never will i'm gonna be thinking about it a lot this movie Made me excited for movies. I like. I'm really glad wow. I saw it. And I, uh, yeah, I like seeing a really good blockbuster. I like seeing something that's made with craft. I'm. Did really you see excited. Godzilla? I liked Godzilla a lot. We <laughs> talked about it on this here podcast and got a lot of shit for it. Everyone likes Godzilla it. here. <laughs> everyone's everyone's yeah. on the among, same team there. You're among that's, friends, David. This is a that's a show. Things. Like when we recorded that, I was you know we I think we were still in this innocent time where it seemed like everyone would really like Godzilla. But, uh, we had hope then. Yeah. No, uh, I, like I the humans of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I liked in this movie when they used technology to bring um, the weight into the movie. Oh my um, god! Yeah. When the, the weight the started, I like <laughs> smiled so big. So I was like, "That is a great song, perfect that song." That's the exact song you want to listen to in the redwood forest in uh, north of San Francisco. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know why there's a gas yeah, that's station a really, there. But that's we'll, a really, yeah, I don't know why there's like a decrepit 76 gas station in the middle of the woods. That's it's only been 10 years. Those neon, redwoods don't but grow that that's fast. A really, that's a really nice scene. I think it's the kind of scene that Matt Reeves can... There's a lot of sleep. really nice scenes in this movie. Come on. I mean, yeah, you know, we, we, we're dissing... Or we're not dissing it, but we, I don't think uh, we all, we all agree. After that. I think there are no <laughs> nice scenes after that is a problem. We, well, uh, I again, I think a lot of the action stuff, and I think, um, and not to get into spoilers, what Jason Clark has to do in the second half of the movie is pretty uh, exciting, thrilling to me. Uh, it, it, you know what? Predictable is not a word, is not a pejorative here. This is not a bad thing for me. Predictable is every time I see a Shakespeare I agree. play, it's I predictable. I agree with you. I think um, and, but, but I did want to hone in on something here going <laughs> I, back to. I agree with you. I think that. Uh, I, I wanted to go back to the female characters, and the, I I didn't realize how much I liked Carrie Russell as an actress. Like she sucks me into anything, uh, and it, it can be underwritten. I don't and she's hear about that. just like mag- magnetic to me. And there's this moment between her and Cody Smith McPhee where we learn the one character detail that she has going on. And that totally works for me. That's enough. That's like fuel for the fire because Cody's it's in her hands. Let's not, t- let's not go down this character road. is 
holding a copy of Black Hole. For Halloween, you could buy a copy of Black Hole, dirty it up, and walk it around, and you would actually be mistaken. Well, you would have to sketch. You would have to have a sketchbook. Um, But I do want to agree with you that predictable is not necessarily pejorative. I think especially in a movie that is tracing sort of these cyclical behavioral patterns about how different factions respond to one another and how best intentions can be undone by violence. This has happened before. It will happen again. I think predictable is is hardly the best word I could use to describe why I was so – I mean you're predictable uh, and we like you. Right. (laughs) But but the – you know – it comes for me. It comes down to one of those things as to things that work in the real world. Concepts that I believe in don't always necessarily translate well to storytelling. And I think predictable stories can be told well when they are goosed in the in the right way and they are augmented with things that make them unique. And I think to have to have this sort of crazy post-apocalyptic San Francisco that's ruled by apes more or less uh and still have it feel that that predictable I, it just it it's just it's just like i just didn't care <laughs> well, <laughs> just, <laughs> those of you who see the movie this weekend and i hope you do uh chime in and let us know which of us you agree with because uh i don't know yeah. Man, david or everybody situation? else <laughs> what if well what if this is another godzilla situation where we find out three days later that everyone's with david and uh, I find that I, I, I we'll be stranded in San Francisco, wondering if we should kill them all. Then we'll be that <laughs> podcast. Now, when is Matt Reeves going to make an interesting movie? I mean, like here, he has. I think he exudes talent. I think that you love Cloverfield. In. I love Cloverfield, and that's not even. I mean, what I, what I love so much about him in regards to Cloverfield is that 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 the type of film that Cloverfield is seems entirely separate from the type of talent that he's revealed himself to be. Wow, I disagree. There's a lot of Cloverfield in this movie. I think so, but there's also he's a he he's a classical style that comes out in Let Me In and certainly here that I think he handles with whatever. He handles with (laughs) panache and um, in a way that it really isn't too far removed from from a Gareth Edwards or uh, you know the influences that he obviously cribbed from. Um, and I think that there are many untapped sides of, of Matt Reeves that hopefully we'll get a look at in the future. But Let Me In <laughs> is just like what a waste of time and money. Everyone's, and, uh, everyone's saying and, he should direct a Star Wars movie. Yeah, there's one oh left. My God, one no. more solo Star Wars movie. I know. Movie. Not, no, well, not every great director needs to go to I, I completely well, agree. No, it, I need, also, it needs to be a white man. I it also be don't Reeves. think – okay, yes. It, I, it has to be a white man. I, I, I wish that it were not a white man. But if we, if we accepted – not that we should, but for the purposes of the conversation, we accept that it's going to be a white man. Um, I think that he would be a good choice because he's not a great director. He's never done anything to prove that he's a great director, but he's a competent director. You are turning my a, world upside down right now. I can't believe I'm very, hearing this. This is – I walked into this movie and I thought, what a occasionally competent film. <laughs> and and <laughs> like this is uh, – he's a competent director that thrives with resources. I – Personally, would love to see him dabble with things that are a little more uh, out left out in left field, like Cloverfield. But you know, in in a vacuum, he, this is what he's done. You know, see, I'd rather I'd rather him make his Lincoln project. Um, I keep thinking, I keep thinking of um, you know, one day we won't have Spielberg. Who who takes over? Who makes a Spielberg movie and not a carbon copy? I loved those blockbusters growing up, but like what Spielberg does, who can emulate that or continue that 
style of filmmaking. And I saw this movie. I'm like, Matt Reeves could make any kind of movie. And it would be elegant and thought through because he understands material and can react to it. Um, but he can he does have a classic style and he has restraint. And he's a really good director. I mean, he may not be matched with the right material all the time. But if, if I'm going to point to someone and say heir to the Spielberg throne, it's probably Matt and, Reeves. Oh, you know, before we started recording, I saw a commercial on TV for Guardians of the Galaxy and was, you know, it was the first time after seeing Dawn of the Planet of the Apes that I was reintroduced to the Marvel aesthetic and it's even more horrifying than it was four hours ago i mean it's uh <laughs> it's matt you know matt reeves is the kind of filmmaker who may have a lot of trouble theoretically submitting to that sort of candy colored generic sheen and i value him for that and uh you know i, I dread guardians of the galaxy because of it but i think i i wish that i i, I don't think matt matt reeves is the problem with this movie um i really don't I think that the the story and the script were uh, this was a doomed deal from the moment he signed on. But he made it he made it as uh, attractive as he could, and I think it's a great resume builder for him. But it's just not the movie that I hope to remember him by. Well, everyone else liked it. Yeah, let's 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 go 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 see see an apes movie if you if it sounds like. Wait, we didn't mention the bear. There's a bear in it. Oh yeah. And I leaned over to Dave and I'm like, that was Princess Marita's whatever her name is. It's a mother. jump bear. <laughs> a what? <laughs> it's, uh, the, the movie is gloriously light on jump scares, but the bear is a jump. jump. Bear. It's a jump Ooh, bear. I see what you did there. Oh, good. Wait, Katie, you did not like the 3D? That's how we should end. Recommending this movie to people to see in theaters, which I think the... Dave, you and I do, but you're you're anti 3D after our experience. I think there's uh, absolutely no reason to see. This. Did you guys see it with the big bulky glasses, or did you have like? I saw it today, and I I had never had these glasses before. They were like very large, heavy, bulky glasses. It was interesting. No. Uh, the uh, the 3D was very smooth, and and it felt like because the movie native. was shot. It's, it's yeah, shot in 3D, it's 3D, right? 3D. Right. So yeah. that accounts for that, um, but. The movie, the, the compositions of the movie, after praising Matt Reeves for putting this film together so handsomely, uh, he did not direct it for 3D, uh, even if he used 3D cameras. This is not a movie that I think the textures of compositions ever once. I don't think I can remember a single example. Uh, there's some depth issues when they're showing the, um, the, the various encampments, the human city um, and the ape fortress, where I think you do get a nice sense of depth with the 3D, but it doesn't begin to compensate for how dark and dingy the picture is katie what do you think i don't think it's directed for 3d i don't think i i gained anything from seeing it in 3d um yeah don't pay the extra money whatever oh i liked it there's a great intro with lasers and a, a map and it's all layered and it's cool oh patches see michael bloomberg in 3d at last <laughs> finally my dream's going true <laughs> You're a cat that wants to have a serious conversation but i have my car keys and once i start dangling them <laughs> Movies, Just movies. <laughs> oh, oh, help me, Dr. Sayers. Dr. Sayers, Dr. Sayers. Dr. Sayers, Dr. Sayers. Dr. Sayers, Dr. Sayers. Oh, Dr. Sayers. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. On a second opinion. You're all so lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas.
Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Can I play the piano? You lie. What is, wait, before. Trust. <laughs> yes, please do your entire outro as, uh, as Caesar or as Koba. As Bane, as Caesar. Hello. <laughs> Apes do not we kill apes. <laughs> Amy, love, dawn of the planet of the apes. Oh my god, why did I not spend all day making an edit about that? The fall of man comes later. (laughs) Hey, Pashas, what was this week's lightning round question? Uh, Yes, it was inspired by Boyhood, which everyone should probably definitely see at some point. We'll be reviewing it next week. But it was, which child star surprised you most, good or bad, when they became an adult? I'm going to go first because I'm yeah, not usually sure. doing this. I'm going to go with uh, user Julian Fadul. said Anna Paquin. Having a career with both the piano and True Blood is certainly surprising. Uh, I didn't know I was going to pick that answer until I saw you put the piano and True Blood side by side. And yes, that is certainly surprising. I don't know if you think that's good or bad, but it could go either way, depending on your taste in True Blood. David. Uh, well, let's see. I am going to go with, I think I have to, with Lena Houst at Duncan Houst, who says, Jean-Pierre Liard, uh, because that loveless empathy present in the 400 Blows is all but extinguished by the later Antoine Toinelle films. Well, that's a negative take. I picked it before you even read the rest <laughs> you of You didn't actually tweet. read the whole uh, answer. <laughs> I just, I stuck with the name. Although, you know, I, Jean-Pierre Liard has he appeared in Irma Vep, uh, which in and of itself uh, is is enough to fulfill the promise of his career as a child star. Um, and so I will rebut this answer and say defiantly Jean-Pierre Liard. And also he's in he's in a number of charismatic films. He's in uh, Tsai Ming Liang's What Time Is It There? Come on. Come on. Catches? Um, yes, I'm going to go with... Another sad one. I'm going to go with Conrado Falco at Coco Hits New York, who says, uh, I remember being shocked at some point that the lovely girl from the Parent Trap remake had become a train wreck. And I I agree. And I think all this like Mean Girl talk, is it the 10th anniversary of Mean Girls? A lot of people have been talking about Mean Girls recently. And, you know, there was a hullabaloo about... um, about Lindsay Lohan having her reality show and she's going to be on a play on the West End and I none of it feels very real to me like everything that happens to her is just tabloid fodder but she's so good in Mean Girls and she's really good in The Parent Trap and she's good in movies and you wish I don't know I, I she must be talented right if she could be good in those movies when she was younger and getting older and uh someone could probably do something with her that's interesting if everyone would stop taking her, like, regarding her as a joke. I think. I don't know. Uh, the alternative is scarier, which is that it could have been any of us, but it was her. Yikes. It could have been me? I could have been Lindsay Lohan? Well, the alternative I, I of her not being talented her. is it just could have been anyone. It just happened to be her at the time. Oh, that's true. Um, yeah, well, yes, I, I, I actually really like the Parent Trap remake. Me too. We should talk about it sometime. Let's do that handshake um, sometime. Yeah. Um, I'm going with Mouth Dork, which is my favorite Twitter handle that we have, uh, who says, Ethan Hawke from Dweebish Explorer to emotionally crippling before Midnighter, simply ignoring his one-and-done horrors, which I think is a fair thing to do. Um, yeah, but, I mean, we'll talk about Boyhood next week, watching Ethan Hawke grow up just now from, you know, mid-30s to 40s. And Boyhood is uh, something that 
surprisingly enough, I feel attached to, and Ethan Hawke, I think, has aged really interestingly. We were talking about oh, this the other day. Oh, oh Captain, my Captain. We, I, know. I don't I don't like Ethan Hawke that much. I don't think he's ever either, really been in a good why... movie. What? You don't think Ethan Hawke has ever been in a good movie? <laughs> Wait, Wait, you're wrong. Let, let me rephrase that. Can let me rephrase <laughs> <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. I don't think he's been like exceptional in a movie, if that makes uh, sense. Like I think he is working for Linklater in the before movies, which I adore, and he can be very natural. He just hasn't. He's never really blown me away, and his his crap movies do detract from his his potential stardom for me or his his Hamlet. mystery as an actor. What? He was Hamlet. Yeah, but he wasn't a good Hamlet. Beside the point. We're just talking about, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. I'll never forget Gattaca. You're crazy. I almost answered Jonathan Taylor Thomas, so there you go. What happened to that guy? Disappointing. Uh, I know. You should have him on the podcast. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week to uh, talk about less, fewer apes. I can guarantee there'll be fewer apes discussed on next week's show. Uh, Everything else is up for grabs. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet all over the place, and I put it all on mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. Uh, and that's it. I'm David Ehrlich, an editor-at-large with Little White Lies magazine. Uh, you can find me writing on the Dissolve Navy Club, and you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner, and I will hopefully not be tweeting about uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and let you all enjoy your, your monkey movie. I'm Dave Gonzalez, spell that first part DA7E. I write about superhero movie news and Star Wars, latino-review.com, and just everybody pause. This was our last dawn until Justice dawns a year and plus from now. Ooh. I'm already asleep. No, it's two years. Two years. Two Two years. I keep forgetting that. Two years from now. I'll be asleep between now. It's always darkest before the next dawn, Katie. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A T Y R I C H. I will hopefully also tweet less about apes, but no promises. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Well, Channing Tatum. Oh. Channing Tatum! Take a load off Fanny. Take a load
Put the load right on. 